Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. series that you're in, deconstruction. It's what I call the season of deconstruction, where you see more and more people deconstructing the faith, in some cases walking away from the faith. And so Chad defined deconstruction like this a week ago. So let's go ahead and redefine it just to re-examine the definition. Taking apart and examining our practices and beliefs to determine their truthfulness and usefulness and impact. Now, Chad made a great observation a week ago. He said there's some things we ought to be deconstructing, like questions are not the problem. Questions are how we assimilate the faith into our own lives. I went through a very similar process when I was uh, roughly your age as a young adult in my 20s. I'd been raised in church, and I'd gone to Sunday school, and I'd been through all the vacation Bible schools, and I'd been taught that the Bible was true and that Jesus was true. But I came of age, and all of a sudden, I started asking some of these same questions, like how do I know that this is really true? How do I know I don't just believe this because my mom and dad said it was true and my Sunday school teacher said it was true? And I began asking some of these very same questions that some of you might now be asking in this age of deconstruction, deconstructing Christianity. And this is the conclusion I came to in my 20s. This is why all these years later, like 10 years later, I'm still a Christian. Right here's the reason why, right here. True Christianity, I'm convinced, cannot be truly deconstructed because it is founded on the historicity of the resurrection. See, that is the foundation of our faith. And everything else is a peripheral issue. It's not that they're not important issues, but no other issue forms the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. That's why Chad opened up with this a week ago. The resurrection really is the foundation of Christianity. And so I began to examine the evidence of the resurrection. There's a lot of people like to say, well, you know, you're either a person of faith or you're a person of reason, but you can't be both, right? You're either a person that's just going to blindly believe in the a Christian, you got to have a lobotomy and just lose part of your brain, or you're going to see life through an intellectual lens, and you're going to analyze the evidence and then draw those conclusions. And I would suggest you don't have to choose between the two. God gave you a brain for a reason. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 118 says, come now, let us reason together. And so I think that we have an opportunity to look at the reasonable, rational evidences for the faith. Why be a Christian and why follow this one in history we know as Jesus? And I'm convinced personally, having examined the evidence for the resurrection, you can deconstruct a lot of things, but you can't deconstruct the resurrection like the evidence, in my opinion, is beyond reasonable doubt. Now, you can't prove anything beyond all doubt. If you weren't there, you can't prove anything beyond all doubt. That's why it's called faith. 
but we can prove the resurrection beyond reasonable doubt. And that's why when I talk about people deconstructing and you hear stories of people who walked away from the faith, well, I used to be a Christian, I'm not a Christian, they never talk about the resurrection as their reason. They never talk about the lack of evidence as the resurrection for their reason. They talk about other issues. Uh, They don't really deconstruct Christianity, they deconstruct churchianity. And there's a difference between churchianity and Christianity. So you can deconstruct religion, but you can't really deconstruct the resurrection. So I got online, I was looking at some stories and people post online about why they walked away from the faith. Like one young lady says she walked away from the faith because she had like a summer internship where she traveled around the country with a ministry and she volunteered in various churches around the country. And it was during that summer that she saw a lot of hypocrisy within the church and so she just decided she can no longer be a Christian. And do you realize what she did? She didn't deconstruct Christianity she deconstructed Christians, or I might suggest self-professing Christians, right? And so here's what I want you to see. None of that makes it not true. Uh, We hear about people deconstructing the faith for all kinds of reasons, but I want you to see this is the reason that today we continue to follow Jesus because we are convinced that he really did die, and three days later he really did resurrect, and he really is alive. And paradigm, listen, if that really is true, then nothing else really matters. I mean, if Jesus came out of the grave, nothing else really matters. And if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, then nothing else really matters. I want you to see that is the central issue of what it means to be a Christian, not the age of the earth. And you hear people getting an argument over a young earth, an old earth, or Genesis chapter one, an allegory. We're supposed to take it literally. I want you to understand, none of that really is the central issue of what it means to be a Christian. The question is this, did Jesus come out of the grave? And all these years later, I am still convinced that he did, and that's why I am still a Christian. Now, we have uh, questions that people ask, and I think these are legitimate questions. As Chad said last week, you ought to be able to ask your questions in church. God's not threatened by people asking questions, trying to make sense of a lot of the nonsense. And one of the questions we hear a lot is this question right here. I can't believe in a God that will allow so much suffering. And sometimes when we think about deconstruction, this is the real issue. This is what happens in someone's life where they begin questioning the faith or they begin questioning God. Can I really believe in God? Something happens in their life personally that causes them a lot of pain or a lot of loss or a lot of trauma. And it really goes something like this. How can I believe in a God that would allow so much suffering? I mean, let's face it, we live in a world full of pain and full of suffering. How can we believe in a God that claims to be good when the world is so bad? There seems to be a contradiction. I mean, there seems to be a paradox. How do we manage this tension? How do we we believe in a God that allows millions and millions of African children to starve to death? That doesn't make sense. How, How do we believe in a God that allows Six million Jews to be systematically exterminated by a man named Adolf Hitler. I mean, the wickedness, the depravity. It's as though God isn't there or God doesn't care. How do we we believe in a God that allows in our generation Vladimir Putin 
to attack a country at peace. And today, at this very moment, wreaking havoc, deprivation, complete destitution on innocent Ukrainians. How, how do we believe in this God and continue to trust in this God when we live in a world where a, a young man walks into a schoolroom and brutally, in cold blood, murders 19 children? I mean, seriously, this would seem a, a real contradiction. Listen, as a Kansas City cop back in the 90s, I personally witnessed more than I could fathom or have imagined. There's a reason I'm convinced God sent me through the KCPD as a unique preparation for the ministry. I'd kind of grown up in a little bit of a sheltered home, a little bit of a sheltered environment where, you know, I, I, was, I was so sheltered from the real world, I feel like maybe growing up that, you know, bad things were always something that happened to somebody that happened to somebody that somebody knew. I was kind of, I knew bad things happened in the world, but it was never really to anybody I knew personally. And then all of a sudden, I go on the PD and I start seeing the, the real depravity, the real pain of this world up close and personally. This was Christmas 1995. I will never forget this moment, this scene. I took this picture with a Polaroid. Now, this was before the age of smartphones and cell phones. I know, it was a long time ago. Back in the, the olden days, where if you wanted an instant picture, you had a, a Polaroid, and now I've heard those things are coming back now. Yes? Yeah, I had one before any of you guys, all right? So I took this on a Polaroid camera. So this is on 435 southbound, just south of I-70. This is Christmas night. I ride up on this scene on the interstate. A drunk had crossed over the median met this car head-on, a head-on collision. And there are gifts and presents and wrapping paper strung up and down the highway. This family had just been at a Christmas gathering with their family. They were on their way home. Wrapping paper and presents are everywhere on the highway. I take a picture of this car. This is the young lady's arm right here. She's crushed to death. Her husband is crushed to death. What you can't see in this picture is I'm taking the picture of this, this car with my Polaroid at my feet right here that you can't see is a baby in her car seat, thrown from the car. She's dead. The baby's dead. Mom and dad is dead. Everybody's dead except the drunk that crossed the median and caused the collision. Not only did he walk away from the scene, he ran away from the scene. He got out of his car and ran. I remember standing there in this moment going, God, God, really? Now understand, I've been walking with Jesus at this point five or six years. I'm a young adult. I'm 25, 26 years of age, and, and I've started walking with Jesus at 21. So I'm a young Christian at this point. I'm trying to make sense myself out of the nonsense, the injustice of this moment, the depravity, the, the horrible scene of this family. They've just been at a Christmas gathering. They're on their way home. They have done nothing wrong. And somebody who got drunk and drove, crosses the median, has a hit on collision, and they get to live? God, why? I remember asking that question right there. 
It didn't make sense, but I'm going to tell you, listen carefully, Paradigm, in a world full of nonsense, the Scripture gives us a chance to make a little bit of sense out of the nonsense. And so let's try to do that tonight. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 is trying to answer this very question. If you have a copy of God's Word, go to Romans chapter 8 with me. He's trying to answer the question to this very thing, the origin of suffering. If God is so good, then why is the world so bad? If God is in control, and we just sang this amazing song, I love this song, Jesus over everything. If Jesus is really over everything, then why does it feel like so many things are out of control when we worship a God who we believe is in control? And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul writes. The Apostle Paul, a man who knew a lot about suffering, who knew a lot about pain, a man that would eventually be martyred for his faith for no other reason except that he was a follower of Jesus. He would suffer torture, imprisonment, and eventually beheadment. And look at what he writes here in Romans 8 and verse 18. It says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Now watch this, listen carefully. Creation was subjected to futility. This word implies uh, emptiness, chaos, confusion, deprivation, death, destruction. Creation was subjected to destruction, not willingly, but because of him, that's God, who subjected it in hope. What Paul is teaching is God himself had to judge his own creation. But he didn't do that without hope. He judged it, yet he did it with hope, promising that one day paradise lost will be paradise regained because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. If you're taking notes tonight, there are three things I want to share about suffering. Making sense of the nonsense. Why do we live in a world that is so bad, yet we worship a God that is eternal? good. Number one is this. I want you to understand. It was the human choice of sin that introduced human suffering. See, God did not create the world that is. It became this way. God created a different world altogether. The world we now live in has been distorted because of sin, distorted because of man's rebellion. And this is really important because God gets blamed for a lot of things that God didn't do. All right? Now, sometimes you hear people say this very thing. Well, if God is so good and God is all-powerful, then there should be no suffering whatsoever. Because the reality, this is kind of how the logic goes, if God is all-good, but he's not all-powerful, he wants to end the suffering, but he can't end the suffering, then I can't believe in that God because, well, he, he might be all good, but he's not all powerful. What kind of God is he? Or the logic says this. Well, if God is, he, he, he's all powerful and all good, and he would like to end the suffering but can't, then he's not all powerful. Or if he could end the suffering but doesn't, then he must not be all good. In fact, that would make him kind of evil. 
And so God gets kind of blamed for things that, that he didn't do. No, the reality is what Paul is teaching is that when you go back to the origin of suffering, the origin of suffering actually goes back to the origin of sin. We go back to Genesis chapters one through three. Now, a lot of people debate, can you take Genesis chapters one through three literally, or is it meant to be taken allegorically? I personally take it literally, but listen, if you don't wanna take it literally, if you don't wanna take it, what we, I say, biblically, just think with me logically, because people sometimes question, was Adam and Eve real people? All right, let's just think about it logically, if you don't want to think about it biblically. There are seven and a half billion people on the planet. Now, I was not a math major, but I'm pretty sure you don't get seven and a half billion people until you get first eight billion people, and you don't get a billion people until you get 500 million people, and you don't get 500 million people until you first get a million people, and you don't get a million people until you get 100,000 people, and you don't get 100,000 people until you get 1,000 people, and you don't get 1,000 people until you have 100 people, and you don't get 100 people until you have 10 people, and you don't get 10 people unless you have two people. What do you guys think? All right, yeah, okay. I'm just thinking logically about this. So the Bible tells us the names of these first two people, Adam and Eve. God tells Adam, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now understand, Adam, we're told, was made in the image and likeness of God. God's plan for man was to establish a kingdom that would be without suffering, that would be without sin, because Adam was going to create not sons of Adam or sons of men, but other sons of God and children of God. He was going to reproduce God's image all over the earth to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it was going to be a marvelous kingdom. In fact, you've heard of the Garden of Eden. It was a real place. I'm convinced it's not an allegory at all. It was a real place, a thing of beauty and bounty and prosperity and plenty. And there was going to be no cancer. There was going to be no COVID. There was going to be no natural cataclysmic disasters. Everyone was going to live forever and live happily ever after. It was going to be awesome. I mean, you've got Adam, the perfect man, married to Eve, the perfect woman, and they're both naked. It doesn't get any more perfect than this. Oh, come on. This is not a teenage. This is, this is a mature class, yes? Okay. Okay. You can giggle a little bit. Everything was set up for perfection. Adam and Eve were going to have sons and daughters that were going to live forever, and they were going to have sons and daughters that are going to live forever. There's going to be no suffering because there's going to be no sin. There's just this one thing. God told Adam, don't eat of this tree, that tree right there. You can eat of any other tree you want to. It's all for you. Kids, go have fun, but don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that's exactly what happened. Adam ate and the rest is history. Creation is still reeling. God had to judge creation because of man's rebellion. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. It says in Romans 5 and verse 12, as by one man sin, that's Adam, death entered the world. So death passed on all men and all women for all have sinned. I want you to see, listen carefully. Verse 22, for we know the whole creation 
now groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What Paul is teaching is that the curse of sin, it didn't just fall on Adam's race, men and women, it fell on all creation. Sin has not only cursed humanity with death and destruction, but all of creation. When Adam sinned, it sent God's perfection and the perfection of creation into chaos and confusion. Job 25 and verse five says, even the stars are not clean. Like even the cosmos are now distorted from God's original plan of perfection. It's now all distorted and diluted because of sin. It's under this curse of creation. And Paul is saying that all of creation groans right now under the curse of sin. Listen, our entire nation groaned just a couple of weeks ago under the curse of sin as we watched in utter shock as pure wickedness walked into a grade school and mowed down 19 innocent children. Our entire nation groaned. For the last two, three years, the entire creation has groaned under this global pandemic with millions of people around the world that have died with COVID. I personally buried a dear friend of mine, a member of this church, I did her funeral, lung cancer. She fought lung cancer for a decade, for 10 years, and guess what? She never smoked a day in her life. All of creation groans under the curse of sin. Do you understand all of this is the curse of sin? Genetic mutation is the curse of sin. COVID, the curse of sin. Cancer, the curse of sin. These bodies are under the curse of sin. God never intended any of us to die. It was never meant to be part of the experience for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. But now every single one of us are under the curse of sin, which means one day all of these bodies are going to grow old, get sick, and die. Every single one of us in some way will experience a life of pain and suffering and loss because everything in this world is destined to decay. It's one day going to fade away. I have this Bible up here. Uh, Do you see the size of this Bible? Look at the size of that thing. Chad Glover got me this Bible as a gift. Yeah. It's enormous. You know why he got me this Bible? It's large print. (laughs) Chad got tired of seeing me squint because I refuse to wear bifocals. Do you know that bifocals are the curse of Adam's sin? That's right, young people. I said I'll be the exception. I never will. I fought it for a decade. I am not going to wear bifocals. People look old when they wear bifocals. I hate it when they wear their little lenses on the end of their nose. I think it looks ridiculous. I am not participating. I said it for years. And guess what? Eventually, I can't. It's going to happen to you too. Laugh now. Enjoy it while you got it. It's going to happen to all of us. You know why? Because these bodies are under the curse of sin. And so Chad got tired of watching me squint. He got me a Bible with large print. It's the curse of Adam's sin. I want you to see no one can escape it, but the origin of suffering goes back to the origin of sin. All of creation 
And I want you to know that the, the question people then ask, logically speaking, it's a good question. It's a, a logical question. If God knew ahead of time Adam would choose sin and thereby introduce suffering, then why did God give him a choice? I mean, doesn't this make God kind of responsible? If he knew ahead of time what was going to happen, after all, he's not just all good and all powerful. If he's God, he's all-knowing. And in his infinite foreknowledge, he could have seen all this ahead of time. Then my word, why did he even give Adam a choice? That's a logical question. Of course it is. But listen very carefully. Think about this with me. If Adam had not had a choice to say no, then his yes would have had no meaning. Do you understand that God made Adam's race, you and I, for relationship? We were made for worship. And do you understand he made us to be part of his family? He made us to be part of his kingdom. He made us to bear his image as the sons of God and the daughters of God. And we were made to worship God and we were made to love God. But listen very carefully now. Love that is not given freely is not love. Worship that is not given freely is not worship. See, had Adam had no choice but to say yes to God, then his yes would have had no meaning whatsoever. We were made for relationship, and if God pre-programmed us, like you can pre-program a computer or you can pre-program a robot, what kind of a world would that have been? See, God knew, listen very carefully, here is the answer, I'm convinced, to the crux of the question. God knew a world without choice would actually be worse than a world without pain. Imagine a world with no choice. What kind of world would that be? You have no capacity to love anybody, much less God. You would have no capacity to be in relationship with anybody, much less God. If we were just a bunch of robots that God created that had no choice but to worship him and had no choice but to love him, what kind of world would that be? I will submit that a world like that would actually be worse than the world that is, a world with pain. So it was a number of years ago, I'll illustrate with this. A number of years ago, I got my first iPhone. I got my first smartphone. You guys probably don't remember the Blackberries, do you? Do you remember the Blackberry, really? Yeah, don't think of Blackberry Pie or Blackberry Cobbler. Okay, so I had a Blackberry, but those things are so archaic. You know that? They're just like so old school. So I got my first iPhone, and I had no idea all the stuff this thing would do. So I admit to being old. I, I admit to being in a little bit of a dinosaur. You know, I'm from the 90s. And, uh, you know, in my day, a phone was to make a phone call on. I had, like, I don't know how many texts on my phone that I had never even answered. I'm so sorry if that was you. Somebody had to show me what a text. I have a text. I can text? Really? I mean, this is awesome. It's amazing. So I'm, I'm learning all kinds of things about my phone. So one day, I, I'm having a conversation, just some random conversation with somebody, and I look at him and say, seriously? Seriously? And all of a sudden, I hear my phone talking to me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. What? My phone is talking to me. I said, no, that's, seri- that's serious. Siri. Right? Siri? So Siri thought I was talking to her. I said, seriously? So Siri all of a sudden awakens. 
And now my world has completely expanded. Like I have a personal assistant now. I had no idea I had before. I mean, I'm serious, I love Siri. Like she is my ultimate Bible study, personal assistant, Siri. Show me John 14, 33, New King James Version. Just like that, she's there. She's awesome. So for the next few days, like I'm in this brand new discovery, Siri knows everything. I mean, so I'm testing Siri to see what she knows, and you know, she has her limits, but she's doing the best she can. What I did not know is that you can program Siri to call you anything you want her to. So one day, completely unexpected, I summon Siri, Siri, and she answers me, go ahead, big sexy. I think to myself, you know, this is getting a little personal. Let's keep it professional, okay? I I like you too, but you know, let's, 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 let's keep this thing professional. Okay, Siri, go ahead, Big Sexy. She's calling me Big Sexy. Little did I know, my son Josh, whom some of you guys know, yeah, Josh has programmed my phone to call me Big Sexy. I was in the middle of a really important meeting at church at the time. Yeah, this was embarrassing. Yeah, I knew right who to turn to, though. Hey, guys, Josh, you guys know my son. He's always playing a joke, right? I had no idea. You can get Siri to call you anything. Siri, yes, amazing. Siri, yes, marvelous. Now, here's the reality, guys. Should I have been flattered that Siri thought I was big and thought I was sexy? Let's be honest. The answer is no. Why? Because she's a phone. She doesn't mean it. She has no mind of her own. She has no mind of her own. It's called AI, artificial intelligence. It's not real intelligence, it's artificial. She has no mind of her own. She doesn't think I'm big sexy. She doesn't think I'm marvelous. I could make Siri say, Phil, I love you. Every time I talk to her, Phil, I love you. I could make her say anything she wants, respond to me in any way. I tell her to, but would it mean anything? The answer is no because she has no mind of her own. Can you imagine, had God created a race of beings with no mind of their own, that he could program ahead of time to say, God, I love you. God, you are amazing. God, you are awesome. It would mean nothing. So you can begin to see why God knew in his infinite wisdom that a world without choice would be worse than a world without pain. And yes, we live in this parenthesis of time where sin has delayed the plan of God, but sin has not denied the plan of God. My friends, God will have his kingdom. He has promised that one day, paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. And if you're taking notes, that's the second thing. He has promised paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. Yes, we live in this tension, this in-between state of the nasty now and now. But you can begin to make sense of the nonsense when you have the long view and not just the short view. Guys, if you just live with the short view of the now, it looks kind of hopeless. It feels like to me, maybe not to you, but it feels like to me maybe the world isn't getting better. I mean, it feels like maybe, is it just me? It feels like maybe the world's getting worse. 
like the hostility and the animosity and just the hatred and the, the wickedness and the bloodshed and the, and the wars and the injustice. I mean, it doesn't feel like we're making progress. Some people say we are, but you know, I'm just in the same world you are and I'm watching the same news that you are. It doesn't look like it's getting better. I would suggest that if we don't look with the long view, it could feel a little hopeless. And the long view says, oh no. In the end, righteousness will win. Paradise lost will be paradise regained, verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. See, right now, all of creation is under the bondage of sin, the bondage of corruption. But one day it's gonna be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, God's gonna end right where he began with the children of God, those you and I that have put our faith in the Son of God that is born again now in the image of God. He now calls the children of God. And guess what? We are going to inhabit a kingdom that's gonna be without end. It's gonna be without suffering because it's gonna be without sin. Paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. God has promised it, and promises delayed are not promises denied. Sin has delayed the plan, but has not destroyed the plan. God's going to have that kingdom. And now you know the real reason Jesus stepped out of heaven. No, Jesus did not come for the cross just so little old you and little old me could all die and go to heaven. No, it's about restoring a kingdom. It's about restoring all of creation. The curse of sin was brought down by a man. Only the death of an innocent man could reverse the curse of sin for all men and all women. The problem is all men have sinned. So God himself became a man so that he could become our sacrificial lamb. He died for our sin to redeem us from sin's curse. And he will finish what the first Adam couldn't. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 calls Jesus the last Adam or the second Adam because God wants you connected to the first Adam. And the first Adam couldn't finish what God told him to begin, but the last Adam will finish where the first Adam couldn't. God's going to restore that kingdom and all of creation. In the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three is this. I will promise you, paradigm, the prize will be worth the price of having faithfully carried the pain of life. This is what I've discovered the older I've gotten, paradigm. In some ways, life gets better. And some of you are going through some really difficult stuff. I mean, suicide is at an all-time high from what I read among the teenage populace, the 20-something populace. And I do want you to know that whatever you're going through, it is not the end. Like, if you would just hang on, I will promise there's better days ahead. And some people just give up too soon. You don't get to see the end. Just hang on. I promise you're gonna get through whatever you're going through. But on the other hand, by the time you're my age, you've gotten to bury a lot of people you loved. You've had to say goodbye to a lot of people you care about. And I remember being a young adult and honestly, 
I really wasn't anxious for heaven. I'd hear about, you know, the rapture and Jesus coming again, and I would be like, yeah, someday that's fine, but not yet. I mean, I got things I want to do. I, I have a life I want to live. And, and I understand that when you're a young person. You know, you have dreams, aspirations. You want to get married. You want to have children. And I, I know all that. Those are all God-given dreams. I'm just saying, the older you get, guess what? The more you realize there's less this world has to offer. There's less this world has that you need. And there's less this world has that you want. And there's a reason God gives us the hope of heaven and the hope of a future kingdom. You get to the end of the Bible, it's right where it began. Revelation 22 and verse 4. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and it says God will wipe away all the tears from our eyes, and there'll be no more mourning, nor sickness, nor death, for the former things are passed away. And what God promises this is that the prize is gonna be worth the price for having faithfully carried the pain of life. And this is what I would say about suffering. There's a reason God allows us to suffer, even the righteous to suffer, even the redeemed to suffer. Listen carefully. Your faith, if you have true saving faith, is not ruined by suffering. It's simply refined by suffering. Uh, these are the words of a man who spent 14 years being tortured for Christ under the communist regime of Romania. His name was Richard Wormbrand. He was a pastor. For 14 years, he spent in a prison in Romania, tortured literally for Christ, for no other reason except that he was a follower of Christ, and he refused to bow down to the communist regime. Uh, for three of those 14 years, he was kept in solitary confinement, complete isolation, in a pitch black cell, three stories below the earth. Can you imagine? After 14 years, he was ransomed by friends in the West. He immigrated to America where he told his story. He wrote his first book, Tortured for Christ. He launched a ministry, still exists today, called Voice of the Martyrs, and it was in his book that he wrote these words. Faith that can be ruined by suffering was never faith. See, if you had true saving faith, and you truly put your faith in Jesus, you trusted in him, and that he is the one that died and rose again, suffering cannot ruin your faith, it cannot erase your faith, suffering simply refines your faith, it reveals your faith. See, suffering does not destroy true faith, it simply develops your faith. It's how the apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter one in verse three as he was writing to a suffering church of the first century that was going through horrific Roman persecution. They're literally being burned at the stake by Nero for sport. They're, they're being fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum and he writes these words to suffering Christians of the first century. In First Peter chapter one and verse three he said this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has begotten us again to a living hope by the, here it is, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance undefiled, incorruptible that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by faith, ready to be revealed in the last time. He said, in this you greatly rejoice as you consider the sweet by and by. But then he says these words, but now, 
if need be, you've been grieved through various trials. But the trying of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory Jesus Christ at his appearing. See, what Peter was teaching is that your faith is like gold. And as a goldsmith would feed that gold through the fire, it wouldn't ruin the gold. It would refine the gold. It makes that gold purer, more beautiful, moldable. He said, faith is like that. God allows you to go through the fires of life, the trials of life. There really is a purpose for the pain. And as your faith is forced to suffer, it is refined in the fire. It becomes more beautiful, purer. Now you become moldable in the hands of the God that made you, died for you, and loves you. Her name was Betsy Tinboom. She died in a Nazi concentration camp. She was in prison, arrested by the Nazis in 1944. She was hiding Jews as the Nazis occupied her country of Holland for no other reason than hiding Jews in her home. She and her whole family were arrested. 1944, Betsy Tinboom dies the most horrific, horrific way imaginable in a Nazi concentration camp. Her sister Corrie Tinboom survived where she wrote about their experiences in the book Hiding Place. And it was in her book, The Hiding Place, that she quotes her sister Betsy Tinboom just days before she died in this Nazi concentration camp. Now we know there are no depths so low that God isn't there. She said, even in the darkest, most imaginable place on earth, it is never so dark that the light of God can't shine. There's never so much hatred that the love of God can't win. Now we know there is no place on earth, even in a Nazi concentration camp, that God isn't there. I'll give you one more quote by Jesus Christ himself. John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Paradigm, listen carefully. Christ was teaching that he came and suffered, but though he suffered, he overcame. And if you are in Christ, even when you suffer, you can be an overcomer. People ask, well, what kind of a God would allow innocent people to suffer? The reality, there's only one man in history who was ever truly innocent and truly innocently suffered. His name was Jesus. You and me and everybody else you know, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
No, there's not one among us truly innocent. We've all sinned, Romans 3, 23, fallen short of the glory of God. There is one man in history who was truly good, the only good man, the God man, Jesus himself, who never ever sinned. He suffered innocently for all men and all women. He said, behold, I make all things new. Paradigm, listen carefully, even now, he's making all things new. Now we live in this parenthesis of not yet, but he's making all things new. The only question left is will you let him make all things new for you? Have you placed your faith in the only hope apart from which there is no hope? Jesus is our only hope. For all the millions and millions and millions who have died throughout history, there's only one man that rose from the dead, that today he is alive and he's the one that offers resurrection hope and he's gonna restore all of creation. He's the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in him, though he may die, yet shall he live. Jesus, I pray tonight for every man, every woman here. God, in this age of despair, this age where it feels like hopelessness is everywhere, I thank you that we have a living hope that has been resurrected from the dead Jesus, eyewitnesses were everywhere. They saw you personally die. They saw you personally raised from the dead alive. These men and women didn't die for a lie. They went from being cowardly, hiding for their life, to courageously giving their life. And the evidence of the resurrection is all I need to believe one day you're gonna do what you've said you'll do, a brand new creation, paradise lost, paradise regained. I pray for every man, every woman right here tonight at Paradigm. God, you know all that each one is going through. The trials, the tribulation, the temptation, the headaches, the heartaches, the stress, the duress. And Jesus, tonight, you're using it to draw men and women to yourself. The hope of heaven has come to the earth so that one day we can all go to heaven. We thank you tonight, Jesus, that you suffered to one day end all suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.